They are one of the most successful bands ever, changing the landscape of music, fashion, and culture from their humble beginnings in Liverpool, England, until their breakup in the late 60s, their influence on and in Chicago is indelible. Today we're talking with an author who knows the story inside and out, and he's going to share some of it with us. I'm Tommy Henry, and this is the Chicago History Podcast. If you're interested, the long-form interview is up now at YouTube. Just search for Chicago History Podcast. If you prefer the slightly condensed audio-only version, stay right here. With me today is John F. Lyons. He is the author of the new book, Joy and Fear, the Beatles, Chicago, and the 1960s. Welcome, John. Well, hello, Tommy. It's a pleasure to be here. It's a, it's a pleasure to have you. Let's, uh, let's get a little background on John F. Lyons. Uh, based on your accent, I'm hearing New Jersey. Yeah, a little bit further east. Okay. But, okay. Uh, yeah, as your uh, listeners probably already guess, uh, I'm not from Chicago, but I'm originally from uh, London, England. And uh, I have a very sort of strange sort of route to uh, this book. So I'll just briefly tell you I, I uh, left school at 16 and uh, I was working in construction for 12 years as a welder. And I didn't go to uh, college till I was 28. I went to university. And I went to university in uh, the north of England, in uh, Manchester. And they had a uh, exchange program with Detroit. So I ended up uh, going to Detroit for a year to study. And in one of my classes, actually, to make it even more romantic, in my Vietnam War history class, I met my future wife. That's very nice. I know. I thought you'd want to start with a bit of romance. Yeah, so, I like that. I like yeah, that. So we got together and uh, I went back to, uh, to England to finish off my degree. And then uh, we both decided to move to Chicago. And I came to Chicago in 1994 to do my uh, PhD in American history at the University of Illinois at Chicago. And uh, then I, I stayed in Chicago and uh, I teach in uh, Joliet Junior College, and I teach uh, classes in American and uh, British history. And this is my fifth book. Yeah, you want to know the uh, the romantic ending to the story? I do. And it is. We married. We're still married, and uh, we hope to be married until the day we die. You know, the the funny thing about this book is, uh, I grew up a Beatles fan. I felt like I knew a lot about the Beatles. And yet reading your book blew my mind because there was so much that I didn't know. And being a big fan of Chicago history, uh, of course, uh, there was a ton of stuff uh, to, to go over as well. One of the great stories you wrote in, in your book, Tommy Rowe, who's an American singer who had been touring with the Beatles in the UK, returned to the States with a copy of Please Please Me, played it for his record label, ABC Paramount, the executives have one listen. The president of the company, Samuel Clark, throws a record in the trash can and says, gentlemen, that was crap. That to me seems like one of those things that he probably never lived down, right? He did slightly regret that for the rest of his <laughs> life. But uh, I think you've got to realize, though, that uh, really no British group 
or no British artist had really made it in America before the Beatles. You had the odd one-hit wonder. And uh, just before the Beatles came over, you had Cliff Richard, who was the big uh, British hope, came to America, and uh, he died a death. So basically all of these executives, you know, when they heard uh, that the Beatles were a British group, they just thought that nobody's going to be interested in this. This is not the music that the American market is drawn to. And so I think they already had that prejudice in their minds as soon as they started listening to it. And uh, so it's no coincidence that uh, the, the Beatles were signed uh, in England to, to EMI Records and their subsidiary in America was Capitol Records. And the same thing happened when uh, EMI sent over in uh, early 1963 the uh, Beatles singles that were being released in England, Love Me Do, Please Please Me, the Capitol Records decided that they wouldn't release them because they just didn't think that there was a market for British groups in America. So that's why it ended up with the the, the first record label to release Beatles records in America was actually VJ Records, which was based in Chicago. They not only released the first Beatles single, Please Please Me in February 1963, but also the first Beatles album in uh, January 1964, and that was introducing the Beatles. Tell us a little bit about VJ Records. Well, VJ Records was actually uh, owned by uh, African-Americans. It was owned by uh, Vivian Carter and her husband, uh, James Bracken. And uh, they were quite a prominent record label. Uh, before uh, they picked up on the Beatles. A number of uh, Chicago acts, blues acts, soul acts uh, were assigned for uh, VJ. They were based down in uh, Michigan Avenue, South Michigan Avenue, and the building is still there. So if you're Mm. ever interested in going down to, uh, if I remember right, the address is 1449 South Michigan Avenue. You can actually see the building there, which is obviously empty now. But uh, it's amazing that it's still there. So anyway, that that was a record label that was relatively successful uh, before uh, the Beatles uh, joined the label. But they they were offered it because Capitol Records uh, wouldn't release their records. And so it was offered to VJ and VJ said, we'll give it a go. And they released uh, Please Please Me early February 1963. And they spelt the name of the band wrong. Tell us a little bit about uh, the Chicago Defenders' involvement uh, in the the Beatles. Yeah, yeah. When the uh, the VJ released the uh, the records, we think that the first we're virtually sure that the first radio station in uh, America to play uh, "Please Please Me," the first uh, single, was WLS, you know, the Top Forty Juggernaut uh, in Chicago. But then they released a second single for, for "Me to You." And uh, that one was not played on uh, WLS because the first one did so badly. So, but it was definitely picked up by a number of local African American radio stations. And we know that because a lot of people actually remember hearing the Beatles in the, and there's also some surveys that are still in existence where you can actually see the Beatles in the top 40 surveys. So mm. they certainly did play in uh, the summer of 63. Uh, and uh, but again, that got nowhere either from me to you sort of died to death as well. So anyway, but when they got to 64, when the Beatles broke in America, uh, that's when VJ released uh, the Introducing the Beatles album. And it was picked up uh, by everybody in Chicago and elsewhere 
in uh, 64, pretty obviously. They appeared on the Ed Sullivan show in uh, February uh, 64. But uh, they were also picked up by uh, the Chicago Defender. But, you know, again, you don't really see that much really about the African-American uh, view of the Beatles. But uh, as far as I could see, they were very popular in the south side and west side of Chicago, uh, pretty much as they were in the rest of Chicago. Yeah. And, of course, Chicago Defender being the major, you know, African-American newspaper in uh, Chicago. If you leaf through that, you can see coverage of the Beatles that is very similar to the coverage they were getting in the Tribune. And they were even running contests. And there was a lovely contest where they ran when A Hard Day's Night came out in uh, August 1964, where the um, the Defender was offering tickets to the to the show in a contest. And, of course, uh, they showed then the photograph uh, of uh, the people coming out of the movie theatre after seeing it. And, of course, every single person was African-American. So it gives you an idea that they, they were picked up by uh, African-Americans as well. And certainly uh, the Chicago Defender, which, which was also critical of them, just like every other newspaper was. But uh, the coverage they gave them certainly did uh, highlight uh, the Beatles and helped them get some kind of coverage in uh, the African-American community. The backlash that happened so quickly, again, was something that I, I didn't know a lot about. So uh, talk a little bit about that, if you would. Yeah, you know, again, obviously, when the, the Beatles uh, broke through in America, really, it was January 64. That was when I Want to Hold Your Hand became a number one record. And then uh, they were on the Ed Sullivan show on uh, February the 9th, and that brought them to an even bigger audience. So they broke through, really, early 64. Okay. And, uh, you know, obviously... We, we've got an impression now that everybody loved the Beatles. You know, today they're just, uh, you know, they're everywhere, aren't they? You can't find a person that wouldn't say they don't love the Beatles. But in 64, they, they certainly divided opinion. And a lot of people saw them as this wonderful, joyous, happy uh, experience that uh, give them so much uh, joy in their lives. But a lot of people were worried about the Beatles because America was already changing. In the uh, early 60s, there was uh, the civil rights movement was obviously uh, happening. Uh, more women were going to work and they were getting equal pay. Uh, there just seemed to be a lot of changes where the nation was moving in a certain direction. And some people found this a bit worrying. And they saw the Beatles as kind of like another symbol of this changing America. And the ones I'm thinking about here is uh, the church, the Catholic church, which was a dominant institution in Chicago, was worried about uh, the, uh, the Beatles and certainly worried about the female reaction to them, which seemed less than holy. And then uh, the Chicago Tribune, that was uh, the editor at that time, W.D. Maxwell, no great fan. Uh, he wrote about them very early on. Uh, and the first uh, editorial wrote about them was warning America that they were coming. And his wonderful uh, second editorial about them, just after they were on the Ed Sullivan show, was headlined Human sheep dogs so it kind of gives you an idea of uh, where maxwell and the tribune uh, were on the, the beatles and then uh, obviously uh mayor daly now mayor daly was more interested in the chicago white Sox and uh, a traditional irish tune than he was in popular music but uh, he had to cope or he had to face the problem because in uh, september 1964 the beatles came to his city. The Beatles come to the International Amphitheater, September 1964. 
uh, a 13,000 seat arena, which again, until reading your book, I didn't know that uh, they had considered White Sox Park, Comiskey Park and and decided to go with the amphitheater. W- was that a daily thing or was that uh, promoters that were maybe a little bit in over their head or how did the promoter of all the Beatles concerts in Chicago, and they also did the Milwaukee 64 one, was Triangle Productions. And hmm. that was up at the time by somebody called Frank Freed, whose background was as a steel worker who uh, was in heavily involved in left-wing politics and who really favoured folk music. So he had very little interest in uh, pop music, but he was given the concert and he put it on, you know, as his uh, professional duty. He was offered then... Uh, White Sox Park. And he decided that uh, that was uh, at the time holding about 40,000 people, far too big. So he put them on instead at the 13,000 amphitheater for one show. And of course, the tickets sold out in a few minutes. He got 50,000 applications for tickets. He asked the Beatles to put on another show and it was too late. And so they ended up only playing one show on September the 5th in the uh, Chicago, but they did come back the following year and they played two shows at White Sox Park. So by that time, they realized the potential of the uh, the Beatles. But in 64, they really didn't. The 64 show, um, 35 minutes, no encore, lights come up. These days, people would be breaking chairs. And yet, you know, in your book, it sounds like everybody was thrilled that they were there and loved the experience and walked away saying, this is something I'll remember for the rest of, of my life, which I'm sure they did. Yeah, I mean, the concerts, just to give you an idea, like you said, it barely lasted for about half an hour. And then uh, there was no lighting like you get a, a show now. There'd be just like a floodlight on the group. And yeah. uh, there was no modern day sound system. They were basically uh, no monitors. You know, if you're familiar with them, how they can hear themselves on stage. Uh, most of the instruments were not microphoned properly. So the sound would have been awful. The uh, the lighting, there was no lighting show. And, of course, uh, you then had 13,000 people, 90% of them girls, and uh, 99% of them screaming. So that would have been the Beatles' experience in uh, 1964. Your book talked about, you know, Ringo couldn't hear a thing and he would basically watch the sway of, of John and Paul to kind of know where the, the beat was while they were playing. You know, musician friends of mine have often said the Beatles would play those shows with the same amount of gear that most people would play at an outdoor festival, like a small outdoor neighborhood festival these days. You know, even if everybody was pin drop quiet, you wouldn't have been able to hear them in the far reaches of some of those, those venues. But I, I but, think uh, even know. the following year when they played at White Sox Park, you know, obviously an open air arena. They were in, right in the middle. They were kind of like on a, it was like a platform they were uh, playing on. And there they, they were using the same, um, a sound system that the White Sox announcers were using. So you can give you an idea. I mean, it must have been literally, you couldn't hear nothing in 65. 64, at least you're indoors and the sound was more sort of enclosed. But again, uh, people that toured with them, they used to have their own journalists uh, traveling with them. And they said that when they got to Chicago, it was the loudest they'd ever heard the audience on the uh, the tour. In 1964, by that time, wherever they played, uh, girls used to throw things on stage. And uh, the ones at the front would show, throw on uh, notes with their phone numbers on them. 
don't know how that worked out. Uh, they would also throw uh, jelly beans because uh, they thought that the uh, George Harrison had once said that he liked uh, jelly beans. So they decided, oh, that's a good idea. Let's throw them at him on stage. So they used to shower them with jelly beans and also uh, cuddly toys. But uh, Chicago 65, uh, 64, sorry, uh, outdid all of this because somebody threw a steak on stage. We'll be right back. My name is Koji. And I'm Michelle. And this is the Japanese America podcast. So this is where we look at all things Japanese American. We will bring alive the history, culture, and people that make up this diverse community. In this month's episode, we'll examine Koji's unique family history. To help bring this story alive, we brought on actor and comedian Derek Mew. He was reported to be extremely pro-Japanese and anti-American in sentiment. Her husband was taken into custody by the military authorities under a warrant authorized by the Secretary of War. Who was this enemy of the United States? He was my grandfather on my dad's side. To hear more stories about Japanese America, you can listen to this podcast anywhere you normally download your podcast. I, I read that in your book and, and was a little dumbfounded, I guess because I was thinking, you know, there was a lot of talk about how, you know, they were skinny, right? They were, you know, uh, definitely skinny and they had the long hair. And, you know, there were a lot of comments about how the moms thought uh, that that uh, they probably, you know, needed a good meal. But the idea of throwing a steak, I, I didn't get it. And it made me laugh when I read it. Um, but it yeah, but uh, Tommy, I, it wasn't cooked. It was raw. Well, yeah. I mean, I, well, I, mean, I, I don't know what the... If they threw a cooked uh, steak on, say, I hope they'd eat it. But uh, so anyway, and then, of course, then also somebody threw uh, a uh, plaster hand. Who goes to a concert with a raw steak under their arm or uh, a plastic arm? But anyway, the other thing about the concert was uh, because Mayor Daly didn't want them in town. They arrived in Chicago about 4.30 at Midway Airport, not O'Hare, because he wanted to... uh, to put off the fans, so he changed airports. And then he wanted them out of the city as quick as possible. So he never stayed overnight. Even though the concert was an evening concert, they went straight back to the airport and flew on to Detroit at 11.30 at night. They were in Chicago for seven hours. So he obviously thought that that was the end of them. They'd peaked at this one concert in 64. And, of course, uh, much to his, uh, you know, uh, surprise, they actually came back in 65 and played to – uh, White Sox Park two concerts to uh, over 60,000 people. So, but yeah, a lot of people were wrong about the Beatles, obviously. I, I, I don't want to give away too much of your book. I'm impressed on so many levels that it's not just Beatles focus. You talk about the political climate in Chicago. You talk about race issues in Chicago. You talk about so many things that I guess a lot of Beatles fans probably don't uh, consider when thinking about the Beatles in the '60s, and you know, press conferences, and having to apologize for uh, you know Lennon uh, statements and and all that, and and you know, thank you for covering all that. Uh, let me ask you, uh, what are a few misconceptions or uh, you know things that uh, uh, have been stated over the years that are are not true according to your research? Well, the the, the thing about the Beatles, there's been so many books written about them. And uh, obviously, people just uh, one day write a new book. They pick on pick up on what's been written about them before. And we've all done it. You know, there's probably my book. There's probably a mistake. Everybody makes the odd mistake because you 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 have to build on what's already been written. But right. it's pretty clear that in terms of the Chicago uh, concerts, that there is a few 
uh, myths that keep getting repeated. And one of them is in 64. There's this idea that the, uh, the city was actually putting on a civic reception for the Beatles. Now, Mayor Daly is not putting on any civic reception for the Beatles. So this is absolute nonsense, you know, but it gets repeated over and over. And then in 65, there's another myth that uh, the hotel, that, and again, it kind of fits in with the Chicago narrative, that the hotel where the Beatles uh, stayed, the Sahara Inn, was owned by uh, gangsters. And again, it wasn't. It, w- it was uh, built by uh, a gangster, but it uh, hid, uh, sold the hotel to a nice couple from uh, Thornton, yeah. uh, far away from being gangsters as you'd ever want to be. So, you know, things like that is sort of like myths. Then there's another one that I'm, uh, I'm 50-50 about this story, and that's the one about them uh, visiting Margie's. Uh, now, for those that don't know, Margie's is an ice cream parlour on uh, Western Avenue and uh, Armitage. And uh, the story is that after the concert in 65, uh, the Beatles and a few girls turned up at the uh, Margie's and they, you know, ate ate their wonderful ice creams and whatever. You know, again, were they ever there? The owner said they were. Uh, In my book, I found one or two people that said that they remember it. But then other people are sceptical, including me, because uh, the owner didn't actually say this until the late 1980s. It doesn't appear anywhere in the 1960s. There was none of the uh, uh, people that followed the Beatles around mentioned them going off to uh, have an ice cream. And uh, also the memorabilia. I don't know. Have you been to Margie's? Uh, I have. And, and I remember, I, I don't think I looked at it too closely, but there's a picture of the Beatles over one of the booths. But I, yeah. I guess I never looked at it so closely because I just assumed why would they lie? But obviously it's I memorabilia. But if you actually look at them closely, they're all memorabilia that's been put in there more recently. They're not, yeah. So again, there's no uh, photos of them in Margie's. There's no. So they've got them sitting in the booth above the picture. This is just what we're getting from the owner, who's now dead as well, you know. But uh, so, you know, again, I'm scared. I'm not saying it never happened, but it's just, I'd rather if there was some evidence actually from the 60s or or at least some photos or autographs, but there isn't. So, them sort of thing, you know, you kind of get stories, whether it's true or not. In that case, I'm not 100% sure either way, but, you know, they could have been there, but I'd I'd wish there was more evidence for it. Biggest surprise uh, while researching this book? Was there anything where you were just shocked? Well, I I think, you know, the thing about the Beatles, again, we have an image of the Beatles as sort of like the mop-top Beatles and Cuddly and Ringo Starr saying peace and love and uh, Paul McCartney being the sort of like national institution and the vegetarian. Now, in the 1960s, the Beatles changed dramatically. You know, that was one of the things that I find so admirable about them is that their their views about uh, the world around them changed dramatically. And by the late 60s, uh, I I was kind of a little bit surprised because I never read that much about it, that uh, they did embrace extremely uh, countercultural views in other words they weren't just against the vietnam war they were pacifists who were very critical of uh, even britain in world war ii and uh, things that people would have taken for granted they uh, obviously we do know they took drugs now at the time uh, we probably didn't know as much as we do now but uh, they did they were also promiscuous you know, much more than uh, people, again, in the public eye were at the time. Surprised about that. And then, of course, the other thing I was surprised about is the reaction from uh, the uh, 
the city of uh, Chicago, you know, towards uh, the Beatles in the late 60s. And uh, the Beatles were uh, attacked because of these countercultural uh, views. You know, WLS uh, refused to play uh, three of their, or two of their songs and one of uh, John uh, Lennon's uh, solo songs. I didn't really know that much about that they met the Beach Boys in Chicago in 66. And it kind of shocked me that uh, it was the Beach Boys who wanted to stay up all night partying and the Beatles wanted to go to bed. I thought the Beach Boys were these good California lads. <laughs> I was wrong. And then uh, just suddenly, I mean, I, I wanted the book to be full of uh, uh, stories because I wanted to get it from the fan point of view. Another funny thing you you included in your book uh, was um, uh, Hard Day's Night. Uh, people going to Hard Day's Night screaming during the movie where people yes. couldn't hear anything. Unbelievable. Like that I just don't get that right. Like you and know, again, just one. I mean, I interviewed a few people that went to see the uh, the 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 in downtown Chicago in the Loop, but also people that saw them out in the suburbs or whatever. You know, a few days later, and uh, they said they went in. And if you remember the film, it starts with them uh, the the uh, the note from the song, and then they start running. Uh, people said that they remember the first note and nothing else. Wow. It was complete screaming for the rest. And now they know how good the film is because obviously the film is very much about the dialogue. But sure. yeah, yeah, screaming at the film. And again, I think it was because it was kind of like a space where they could do this. They were allowed to do it by the people owning the cinemas and their parents allowed them to do it. Well, again, I found a lot to uh, a lot of interesting stuff in the book. And I hope uh, everyone listening will uh, check it out. I'll have a link. Um, in the uh, show's notes for people to uh, click through and uh, buy a copy for themselves. Joy and Fear, The Beatles, Chicago, and the 1960s. My guest today, John F. Lyons. I could talk to you for hours about this, um, but I, I want to say uh, sincerely thank you for giving me your time. Uh, this has been wonderful. Well, thank you, Tommy. It was a pleasure to speak to you, and uh, hopefully we'll meet again. Thank you for joining us for today's episode about the new book, Joy and Fear, The Beatles, Chicago, and the 1960s, written by John F. Lyons. If you'd like to order a copy of the book, support a local author, and help the show, please click on the link in the show's notes to order it. Feel free to reach out if you have any questions about anything covered today or anything to add. My email is chicagohistorypod at gmail.com. I will have plenty of additional pictures related to this story on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Check it out and give us a follow. The Chicago History Podcast logo and the art used on the social media pages was created by John K. Schneider. Thanks, Johnny. It can be found at Angel Eyes Art JKS on Instagram or via email at angeleyesartjks at gmail.com. We'll be back next week with another chapter in Chicago's history. Until then, order a copy of Joy and Fear the Beatles Chicago and the 1960s. While you're waiting for it to arrive, get out and explore when possible. Learn more about whatever city you live in and stay safe.